In uh, 2009, Pastor Bill Poss, who was the elder here a decade ago, was preaching through the book of Judges. And in his first sermon about the exploits of Gideon, uh, from Judges chapter 6, he did a message entitled, It's Dark in Here. In that sermon, Pastor Bill set the dark background of wicked oppression in backslidden Israel under the heavy hand of the Midianites. Chapter 6 of Judges begins this way. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. This is the pattern in the book of Judges. They do evil, they go into exile, they repent, they come back, and then go back and forth. Chapter 6, in particular, gives the detail about the oppression of Israel at the hand of the Midianites until they humble themselves, again, cry out to God, and God sends the prophet, the deliverer, Gideon, to save them. And Pastor Bill's point of the message was, to il- he illustrated, in order to understand Gideon's value and Gideon's importance and his calling, it needed to be set against the dark background of the nation's apostasy and devastation. In the same way that a jeweler places that precious pearl in all of its brilliance against the black felt dark background when he shows you the gem so that it stands out in its brilliance. And we're going to see the same arrangement today in 1 Samuel. Right before God calls Samuel in chapter 3, we are going to be reminded of the times that this is happening, the dark landscape of the days that this is taking place. We're going to be introduced to the evil sons of Eli, the younger generation of priests in God's house. And today, as we continue to look for the sun to rise on this twilight kingdom in 1 Samuel, we're going to find it's still dark in here. The story of the miraculous birth of Samuel comes as a ray of light during an otherwise very dark time in Israel's history. You have to go back about 50 years to the death of Gideon when the Israelites fell off the cliff, in a sense, into idolatry. Throughout chapters 9 through 16 of the book of Judges, it tells the story of one judge after the next who are characterized by increasing greed, lust, and corruption. And they led Israel into a time of judgment and darkness. The book of Judges concludes with this horrible story of the murder and dismemberment of a Levite whose body parts are dispersed among the tribes, emphasizing the moral decay and the spiritual emptiness that was in the nation at the time. Well, Samuel is born at that time. When we left off our our story in 1 Samuel last time, we saw the joy of a barren woman who had given birth to a son. We found her dedicating her son at God's house in Shiloh. There was this beautiful, powerful, prophetic song that she sang. And as it were, the lights go down on Act 1, Scene 1. Scene 2 now picks up at that very same site of Shiloh. But now the primary actors... Hannah and Elkanah from chapter 1 have gone home, and now they've left the little boy Samuel to minister in the house of God under the tutelage of Eli the priest. As we read about the birth of Samuel in that first chapter and a half, 
you might come away with the idea of, okay, things are going to get better now. The, the hero of our story has been born. Things are going to get brighter. But alas, the very next scene opens up from those sublime musical highlight of Hannah's song. We're plunged into the grim, dark reality of the condition of God's people. We're reminded, again, that it is still dark in here. In verse, we're going to pick up in verse 12 and look at verses 12 to 17, where we're introduced to the wretched sons of Eli by the name of Hophni and Phinehas. In verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Eli's sons were worthless men, and the Hebrew carries a harsher idea here. It's b'nei b'layel, or sons of Belial, uh, sons of destruction. Hannah was accused of this, by of, of drunkenness by Eli, if you remember in the last chapter. She said the same word. She says, I am not a daughter of Belial. I am not a worthless person. I'm not a destructive person. And indeed, Hannah was not. But Eli's sons were. Why? Verse 12 tells us why. Because they did not know the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is where evil behavior starts and ends. They did not know the Lord. The sons of Eli grew up in a holy place. They learned from their father. And yes, he had many flaws. But nevertheless, he tried to show them the right way. But Hophni and Phinehas... Their religion was merely about appearance. They did not know the Lord. They went about the regular routine of rituals. But to them, sacrifice was more important than obedience. In many ways, Hophni and Phinehas are a shadow of a future character in the book of First Samuel, King Saul. King Saul, will find, makes many of the same mistakes that Hophni and Phinehas make. One of the themes of First Samuel, of, of the book of First Samuel, is the heart. And we saw that in chapter 1, where Eli, the heart versus the outward appearance, right? So we saw it in chapter 1, where Eli looks at the outward appearance of Hannah, and he sees her praying, but not saying anything, as she's praying in her heart, and he judges her based on the outward appearance. The people of Israel, as we're going to see, judge on the outward appearance by choosing King Saul as opposed to God's choice, who was a man after his own heart. And here the sons of Eli are living in the holy place, going about the religious rituals of the time, which were the custom of the time, not caring about God's word, because in their hearts, they did not know the Lord. Let's look at what life was like in God's house in verses 13 to 16. Verse 13. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or, or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh, to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say, the man who was offering sacrifice, give meat to the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Now, a little, the details are not that important. 
But you need to understand a couple of things here to get what's going on. According to the law, the priests were provided food to eat through the sacrifices that were offered on behalf of the people. That was okay. That was acceptable. It's written about in the book of Leviticus chapter 7. But what's going on in Shiloh, the custom of this time in Shiloh, actually bears no resemblance to the practice that God prescribes in Leviticus chapter 7. The, the priesthood were permitted to eat a particular part of the sacrifice. Not all of it, not, not random. It was a specific part of the sacrifice. And further, the fat of the offering had to be first removed and then offered to the Lord. So the fat had to be offered as a, a burnt offering to God first. But the custom at Shiloh is the priest taking the offering for himself before the fat is removed, before the offering is made to God, then he boils it and he randomly sticks a pitchfork into the boiling meat to take out his portion. Very different. Now we may not, what's the difference? God is very specific in the way that worship was to be offered. If the worshiper, and it says here in the text, if the worshiper who's offering the sacrifice objected to this practice, and he asked for the have the fat removed. In other words, if he knew the law and he said, remove the fat before you take the offering, he objects. What do the priests do? They threaten to take the whole offering by force. So you see how off they are. The sons of Eli followed the custom, not caring about the proper biblical procedure of worship. In verse 17, it lays out the indictment. It says, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Instead of obedience to God, the sons of Eli and the priests, as was the priest's custom of the time at Shiloh, they did it according to the custom. And they were not convicted by their disobedience either. This is how they lived. Why? Because they did not know the Lord. I ask you, are you like the sons of Eli? Are you living a life characterized by disobedience to God? Are you not convicted by your lifestyle? If so, there is a reason. You do not know the Lord. Maybe you think you know the Lord because you go to church on Sunday or you're baptized or you go through some religious ritual, but if there is no conviction over sin, no care, and you just go through the outward motions of religion, you care less about following God's word, there is one reason, and you need to come to grips with that reason. You do not know the Lord. And if you do not know the Lord, keep listening. Because God is going to offer you the opportunity to repent. Because... Otherwise, your fate will not be a hopeful one. Now, while there's little to be optimistic about as far as the sons of Eli serving as priests, we also get at Shiloh a glimmer of hope. And that hope comes in the boy by the name of Samuel. Chapter 2, we're going to see volleys back and forth between the children of Eli and the child of Hannah. Hophni and Phinehas, Samuel. Hophni and Phinehas, Samuel. Each volley is prefaced by this single letter, the, the letter in Hebrew, the vav in, in Hebrew, attached to the opening word. It's pronounced u, and it's translated either as now or but. And we're going to see it at the beginning of each section of this volley. 
the first section in verses 18 to 21. Now, the ESV leaves the word now out, but it is there in the Hebrew. So in verse 18, now Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. And she went up with her husband to offer a yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return home. And verse 21, indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. That's a beautiful little light. It's the grace of God in a dark time. Just like Gideon's story in the oppression of the Mid- under the oppression of the Midianites. Just like Ruth taking place in this dark time of Judges. Samuel is this sun that's going to rise on Twilight Kingdom. The darkness is deep, but it will not prevail. By grace, Yahweh blesses this dedicated woman with six children. She was barren when we started the story. Here we are, chapter 2, six children. She gave one to the Lord. Get this. She gave one to the Lord, and she received five more without losing the first. What did she do? She gave back to God that which was his. And God blessed Hannah with so much more than what she had given. And this is our God. This is our God. You can never outgive our God. Jesus said, give and it shall be given to you, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Brethren, we need to learn this truth. You know, you're going to save yourself a lot of heartache in life if you realize this. That whatever you seek to hold on to, whatever you seek to to hold close to yourself, you're going to end up losing. Whatever you give for the sake of the gospel, you will save. And that works from the most important things, the greatest things, to the least of things. Whatever you give, you will keep. Whatever you try to hold on to, you will lose. The greatest thing, your life or your family. Scripture is very clear. If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. If you surrender your life to Christ, you will gain not only life here, but eternal life. If you seek to hold on to your family or your home or your land, choosing those things over God, you will end up losing both. If you surrender them, Jesus says in Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, this is Jesus' words, these are not mine, for my name's sake, he says, will receive a hundredfold and eternal life. And what is true of the most important things in life is true of the least of things in life. Our possessions, our our money, that which you seek to save, that which you seek to use for yourself, that which you seek to use for selfish reasons will burn. You will lose it. You'll have a hole in your pocket or some moth, rust, or thief will take it away. But that which you give for the sake of the gospel You will gain. Again, listen to Jesus' words. Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Hannah gave. Hannah gave that which was most valuable to her, her only son. And she received grace upon grace. So I ask you, I challenge you, what are you holding on to? What are you gripping on to that you don't want to let go of? What is it that you bring so much anxiety in your life today? You, you grab it, you hold it, say, this is mine, I earned it, it belongs to me. Whatever it is, trust God with it, and he will take care of you. Verse 22 begins with another now. A volley back. Now we're going to volley back from the story of Samuel back into the court of darkness. And again, this volleying we're going to see throughout the whole book, actually. It does two things in here in chapter 2. What it does is it it reminds us of the light to come. It reminds us of Samuel. It, It brings Samuel before us as we're reading the text. It's discussing all of these things that are going on, this wickedness that's going on. But it's kind of like, hey, Samuel's coming. Like the little, Samuel's coming. Stick with this story. Samuel's coming. And secondly, this volleying is a shadow of something that's going to take place throughout 1 Samuel between light and darkness until the kingdom is established with King David, which which is not going to happen until 2 Samuel. It foreshadows God's work throughout history, how light always follows darkness. That was the rallying cry of the Reformation post Tenebras looks. After darkness, light. 22, now. Here's the volley, back into the court of darkness. The sun hasn't risen yet. Samuel is not on the, on the job yet. If the religious carelessness and disobedience of the young priest at Shiloh was not enough, now he's going to add insult to injury here. The moral atrocities right in the house of God. Verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. So this is a few years now. A few years have passed. Because already Hannah has five five children at home, six children total. So some years have gone. Eli is very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why are you doing such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The grievous sins of Eli's sons are rehearsed in the form here of a strong rebuke from their father, Eli. And this presents also the contrast. You have the contrast, the godly, peaceful family visit of Hannah and Elkanah with uh, Samuel, her son. And in that very same tent, under the very same tent, the disorder and darkness that's going on in Eli's family. Now, whether it was because of his vision dimming or could have been denial or lack of discernment, Eli did not directly witness his son's sins, but others apparently had. So now it's become a scandal. 
Hophni and Phineas's religious lapses have now compounded, and they are now committing perverse sexual acts right in the temple with servant girls in the temple right at the very entrance of the tent of meeting. The very place that they were supposed to guard to keep holy. And this is not done, so this is not being done in secret. There's no shame on the part of the sons of Eli here. Eli is ashamed. Eli is disappointed. And he rebukes his sons. Now we're not told anything about how he raised them or who was Eli's wife here or what was happened in their childhood. But we see the results as adults. Not only are his sons living a boldly sinful life, but they are not listening to the warning of their father. And Eli is giving a strong warning here. Look again at verse 25, what he says. He's basically saying there's no hope for you. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? What hope is there for you? It has that ring of Hebrews to it, sinning from the place of privilege. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but the fearful expectation of judgment. Hophni and Phinehas had the privilege of being raised in the home of a priest. They were familiar with holy things. They grew up around the tabernacle and the menorah and the Ark of the Covenant and and all of these things that were part of their childhood. They were priests. That means they interceded for the sins of others. But now their father says, who's going to intercede for you? Now the question comes up, is Eli to blame for their sin? Now on the one hand, certainly not. Eli is not responsible for the individual choices that his children make to sin. But there is a route that Eli did not take. I'm not going to go through it, but in Deuteronomy chapter 21, it gives instruction for parents who have rebellious children. And it instructs them to bring them before the elders of the city. And it seems like Eli disregarded this commandment. He failed to turn his sons over to the elders of the land for accountability. So, yes, Eli does bear some responsibility for permitting evil to continue to dwell in the house of the Lord. See, Eli could not prevent his sons, from sin. He couldn't prevent them from choosing immorality, but he could have prevented them from doing it as priests. They did not need to be in that position. Likewise, brothers and sisters, in our day, among the people of God, we have a responsibility to keep God's house holy. God enjoins the church to exercise church discipline on those who live rebellious lives. We can't be like Eli and rely merely on instruction and rebuke. Yes, we teach. Yes, we're patient. Yes, we're hopeful. Yes, we pray that God would grant repentance through through exhortation, through teaching, through rebuke. But to tolerate sin indefinitely is to be disobedient to God's command in Scripture. God's house is holy. And God's people, yes, must be warned of the consequence of sin, but then if after rebuke they still do not repent, they cannot allow it to continue. So God gives the church 
this act of church discipline in order to keep the house of God pure. Now, this is difficult. How do we apply this to family? See, this is, what, this is really where it's tough. You have to understand, put yourself in Eli's position here. Even Christians today tend to make concessions and excuses when it comes to their own family members. We have this saying, blood is thicker than water. You've heard of that saying? It means that uh, the closest ties that you have as an, anyone, as an individual is your family. Your blood relatives are the most important of any relationship that you have. And as true as that might be, our allegiance must be to Christ first, lest our family become an idol. And it's very likely that Hophni and Phinehas became idols to Eli because he didn't obey God. He obeyed man rather than God. See, brethren, when we join the family of God, our priority becomes one another. Yes, we love our natural family. We, we sacrifice for our family. We, we, we go the extra mile for our family. But we do not allow our blood family to disrupt our relationship with God or his family or the body of Christ. And I know this is a hard saying for some. It's common in our day for parents, Christian parents, to make soft choices about church life in order to appease their children. But the sad result is that many fathers end up like Eli the priest in our story. Eli chose sacrifice over obedience. He chose his children over God's word. And one thing we learn from 1 Samuel is that it is better to obey God than sacrifice. Whatever Eli did right when he was raising his sons at the end of their life, it's apparent that to Eli, blood was thicker than water, or at least blood was thicker than his fidelity to God. That challenges us as parents, doesn't it? As we raise our children in the ways of God, at times we're going to face challenges. One that comes up, and has come up, is as parents, at what time do we encourage our children to be baptized. Uh, I, and I know in many churches, they'll baptize children on any, at any age, even the youngest of age, upon their profession of faith. But what they may or may not realize when they do this is that with baptism comes responsibility to the body of Christ. You're baptized into the body of Christ. So years ago, there was a family that wanted to have their daughter baptized. I think she was about 11 years old, and she made a profession of faith. Now, I, I look, an 11-year-old can certainly understand the gospel. An 11-year-old can certainly demonstrate the fruit of a believer. I'm not questioning any of that. But when I met with the parents to discuss this question, I said, we could do the baptism. We're, we don't have an age restriction on baptism. But I asked them, do you realize that as a baptized member of the body of Christ, your daughter now becomes accountable to the church, even for church discipline? So that if, say, three, four, five years from now, she meets a young man and she gets involved in a sinful relationship with that man, do you realize that she becomes subject to the church for discipline? I told them, you see, this could put you in a difficult position because you as parents might be torn between your love for your daughter and your responsibility to God to preserve the holiness of his church. 
Well, they ended up changing their mind about baptism. I, I don't know. It's, it, I know that's hard. There's a lot of hard words in, in what we're, we're in this text that we're looking at today. But parents, bottom line is where does your allegiance lie? We must prioritize God's family, even over our blood family, lest we risk being like Eli the priest, honoring our children more than the Lord. Again, hard word to accept, but I ask you, is it biblical? If you're struggling with this, ask God's word. Don't ask me. Don't ask any human opinion. Does not the scripture say we are to obey God rather than men? Now look carefully at verse 25, another hard word for you. Something that we might miss if we just read past it. Look at verse 20, the second half of verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now we could skip over this, but if we skip over this, we're missing something that God puts in his word from time to time. He gives us a glimpse behind the the curtain, if you would. We can read this and we can conclude, well, Hophni and Phinehas were so bad that they failed to obey their father, so consequentially, the Lord put them to death. But it doesn't say that. Careful reading is important. But they would not listen to the voice of their father for... It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So I asked the question, what's the cause and what's the consequence? The way this is phrased here in English, every translation I checked, as well as in Greek, I'm sorry, in Hebrew, it means exactly what it says. Ki kapes Adonai, for or because Yahweh desired to kill them. The result then, they would not listen to their father's voice. The cause, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. In other words, Hophni and Phinehas' resistance to their father's warning was not the cause of their judgment, but was the result of judgment. God had turned them over to their sin so they would disobey their father. Now this touches on a hard doctrine, the doctrine of reprobation. The scripture tells us, yes, there's cause and effect. The wages of sin is death. Death comes as a result of sin. But also the scriptures teach that greater sin is also a consequence of judgment. That a person or a nation under judgment could be turned over to increasing levels of sin. So more sin is the consequence of sin. Increasing levels of sin. There are few doctrines in Scripture more terrifying than this. Romans chapter 1 says, To those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they're turned over to a reprobate mind. Zechariah 7.12, speaking of God's people, they made their hearts like flint. They, They hardened their hearts so much that they could not hear God's word. They could not hear the prophet. So we need to beware, friends. You need to beware. That you do not harden your heart. If you wish to cling so closely to your idols, God may one day give you over to those idols that you love so much. Don't let this verse go by without thinking about this. This is a terrifying truth. I know that. Think about it. One can stubbornly remain in rebellion against God 
so much so that God would confirm them in their sin. That they would then become deaf, unmoved by warnings. Mock warnings. So I could stand up here till I'm blue in the face and call you to repent and believe week after week after week, but you can't even hear it. God forbid. Scottish theologian W.G. Blakey writes about Hophni and Phineas. He says, They experience the fate of men who deliberately sin against the light, who love their lusts so well, and nothing will induce them to fight against them. They were so hardened that repentance became impossible, and it was necessary for them to undergo the full retribution for their wickedness. That's the spiritual condition of Hophni and Phinehas. It's the same as Esau. It's akin to Bunyan's character, Backslider, in Pilgrim's Progress. If you're familiar, he says to Christian, I have so hard in my heart that I cannot repent. But we need to feel this truth. We need to feel the weight of this truth. And not sit in the place of judgment of God. Who is this God who would do such a thing? No, ours is to tremble before him. Tremble before him who can justly make sinners deaf to his own call. And may God keep any of us from such a hardened heart that we, like Esau, could not repent, though he sought it with tears. If you're here today and you're still living in your sin, you're still preferring your uh, to live your life for yourself, to live in darkness and loving that darkness, God, who is rich in mercy, is offering you a pathway out today. Hear him. Hear him. Don't harden your heart again. He would say to you today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Stop testing God. Stop presuming upon his grace. Seek the Lord while he may yet be found. Repent and believe while you still can, while you still have hope, while you still have ears to hear. And even while it's still dark in here, still have hope. Lord, may that resonate on someone's heart. Verse 26. Another now, Bob. Another volley. The light's not far off, verse 26. Quick volley. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with men. So the house of Eli is doomed, but Samuel's coming. He's on the rise. Darkness is going to give way to light in due course. Verse 27. Out of the blue, this man appears, this man of God. We know nothing about him. We don't know his name. We know nothing about him, but he comes with the word of God. Remember the word of God and prophets were rare at this time, but God's word shows up right on time. Verse 27 and 28. And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before him? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. What's happening? This anonymous prophet And he starts reminding Eli of the grace of God in his past. He's saying, the Lord said, I've raised up your line, your house. I've raised up your house to be priests 
I've been good to you. Verse 29, and here's the charge. The man of God gives the priest. Verse 29, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Pointed, clear, right? Eli honored his sons more than God and took for himself the offering of the people. So he was gaining from their corruption. He took no decisive action to stop it. He honored his sons more than God. That's the charge. What's the judgment? Here's now the the gavel comes down. Verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares... I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with an envious eye, and all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Verse 33, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon you and your two sons. Verse 34 again, and this that shall come upon you and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die in the same day. Spoiler alert, in two sermons from now, when we get to chapter 4, that's going to happen. Hophni and Phinehas, on the battlefield, on the very same day, will die. In the very same day, the ark of God is going to be taken away by the Philistines and Eli the priest is going to fall over and die as well. God's judgment is swift and decisive. It's a hard pill to swallow, but God must do this to protect his people. It's still dark in here. It's still dark in here, but... As we've seen this pattern throughout scripture of after darkness, light, the sunrise is coming. Verse 35. The prophet's continuing to speak here, verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. He's basically saying, I'm going to forsake you and turn my favor to another lineage, another line, a different priest, another house, another family. So much so that anyone left in your line is going to be begging from that family. You get what's being said here? The rise and fall of the priesthood of Eli's house, this promise that he forfeited because of his negligence, foreshadows what's to come in the next few chapters of the rise and fall of King Saul. And we'll get to this sometime next year. We'll get to this. 
But listen, just if you want to go ahead to, to chapter 13, or listen, 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 and 14, how, how similar the words of Samuel are to Saul, when Samuel prophesies to Saul in 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 and 14. This is now King Saul. The man of God is Samuel, and he's coming to King Saul and tell him, tells him, God has another in mind. He says in verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Some of the same inclinations. Listen again from chapter 2. This is again the words of the prophet, the anonymous prophet, the man of God. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. Just like he made, he says, basically, you could have had this. But now the Lord declares, I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. And I will raise up for myself, same language, a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart, in my mind. Same idea. In chapter 13, this prince who God's going to raise up, who's Samuel talking about? King David. In chapter 2, who's the faithful priest that's going to replace Eli in his house? Commentators vary. Some say it refers to David because David was after his heart. Some say Solomon because he built the house of God. Some say Zadok, who was the priest that was actually appointed during Solomon's reign, to take over the house of Eli. Some point to John the Baptist. But I believe the faithful priest can be really any or all of these, because ultimately it points to one, whether it's Samuel, David, Zadok, John, Solomon. It ultimately points to the great high priest, the final high priest. The one who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who sympathizes with our weaknesses in every respect was tempted as, as we are yet without sin. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's living today, making intercession for us. The Lord Jesus Christ, his priesthood is eternal. Look at God's word again. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. It's basically, look, I gave you a chance and you blew it, and now I'm going to take care of it. Do you see the, the faithfulness of God to his people here? It doesn't matter how dark this, the situation is. It doesn't matter how much sin is going on in God's house. The darkness is still there, but God is going to have his way. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. God will raise up his shepherds. Shepherds after his own heart to feed his people. Now, this may mean judgment comes to the house of God. It may mean a period of sustained darkness, but nothing is going to stop God from advancing his kingdom. The light of the world is going to come. Now, I'm going to stop here. Originally, it was my intention to look at the last volley, which actually takes place in chapter 3, which is a volley back into Samuel's court, but we'll pick that up next time. Again, this volleying between light and darkness is something that's going to go on throughout, throughout the book until twilight finally gives way to dawn.
But let me close just by us considering two parallel realities that the text brings up. First, the dark reality that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And then the light reality that with judgment comes salvation. First, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. In our text today, we see by example, by the example of Hophni and Phinehas, who are the appointed lights of the world, at times those lights grow dim. We don't have to look far in the visible church today to find the work of Hophni and Phinehas. As the visible church starts to take on the customs of the world, replacing God-prescribed worship. We see this happening around us, do we not, in the evangelical church? The worldly customs that are brought into the church, entertainment in the place of worship, atmosphere in the place of holiness, politics replacing the gospel, prosperity and positive thinking replacing a cross-carrying discipleship. We see apostasy all around us. We see professing believers, Christian leaders who end up denying the faith, some found in immorality. And our our text reminds us this is a reality. Judgment has come. Judgment has begun in the house of the Lord. God has turned over much of the evangelical church, especially in the West, to its own folly, its own love of froth. The folly it loves so much, God is saying, here you go. Vomit on it. But then our text also demonstrates that through judgment, God saves. The priesthood of Hophni and Phinehas was at such a time where their ministry was indicative of the judgment that had come upon the land. But even then, God was not abandoning his people, was he? And that's why you have those volleys in the text. Behind the scenes, God is at work raising up this little Samuel. He's little at this time. He's unseen among the mess at Shiloh. Probably so much going on at Shiloh, people don't even notice unless they peek back behind the curtain. Who's that little boy there? But he's brought before us in the text. What a liturgical and moral mess the people of God are in. But yet God leaves us notes about Samuel, short and scattered among the rotten religious disgrace. And also, think about this, at the same time, at this very time, just 30 miles south of Shiloh, 30 miles south at this very time, a baby was being born in Bethlehem, the eighth son of Jesse, who would become King David the man who God would establish his kingdom upon. And he was just being born in quiet. No slogans, no speeches, no fanfare. Uh, Jesse was no, no king, but he's quietly growing as a child, just like little Samuel grew as a child. Likewise, brethren, when we look at the church, we see dark times, and historically the church has gone through dark times. There's always been a light on the horizon. Remember that great rallying cry of the Protestant reformers, post-Tenebras lux. After darkness, light. What were they referring to? They were referring to the discovery of biblical truth in the time of Roman Catholic darkness. 
after darkness, light. And because the darkness of false teaching and immorality is constantly creeping in to the church, we ought to always be looking out, brothers and sisters, for the light. Look for the light that is to come. Believe that God is at work raising up godly leadership for his people, just waiting in the wings. See, growth seldom makes a noise. It's slow, it's quiet. When things seem their darkest, when things seem without hope, when there seems to be no exit from night, the text keeps whispering to us, see my Samuel? See my Samuel? Don't forget Samuel. Take note of this. When you become discouraged by the Hophni and Phineas figures who dominate the visible church in our day, look for the little Samuel walking around Shiloh. He's somewhere there. Because salvation and deliverance always follows judgment. This is God's way. It was his way from the beginning in the garden to the cross to the New Jerusalem and everywhere in between. In the garden, the snake is judged. Mankind is judged for his sin. But what? There's a promise. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. The days of Noah, what happens? He and his family are saved by a flood of judgment that judges the rest of the world. Noah and his family are saved. In Exodus, God saves the Israelites through the Red Sea. And what happens? The Red Sea closes on and judges the Egyptians. The very same waters that saved Israel judged Egypt. And this is the message of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Revelation. So, And above all of this, see it in the cross of Jesus Christ. As the Son of God bears the judgment on that tree, taking upon himself the sin of the world, taking upon himself the wrath and judgment of God that we deserve as the light of day goes to darkness and our maker bows his head and he gives up the spirit and the day closes. But just three days later on that bright Sunday morning with the rising of the sun, the son of God rose from the dead and he secured deliverance from sin and death. Hallelujah. As darkness gives way to light, so the judgment tree of Calvary And the grave of a rich man become the salvation of God's people in his resurrection. Indeed, Psalm 30, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Judgment is always a sign of coming salvation. Just as darkness always gives way to light. God gives us a demonstration of that every day when the sun comes up. As sure as the sun will rise in the day, Brothers and sisters, we await an eternal day where there is no more night when Christ will come and call us home. When the night of suffering and pain and tears and sin in this life will finally be over and give way to a kingdom of life that light that will never pass away. An eternal day where we will feast and weep no more. Let us give praise to God and worship Him who sent His Son to be that light of the world. Amen.